You're listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. This is the show that talks about identity and access management and making sure you know who has access to what. Let's get started. Welcome to the Identity at the Center podcast. I'm Jeff and that's Jim. Hey, Jim. Hey, Jeff. How are you? Uh, Not so bad. How are you? Good, good. I'm uh, lining up my plans for this weekend already. I've got to work on cable management. I've got cable so management. many cables coming out of my computer that it's starting to be when I move things around, I wind up unplugging things. It's modern. It's a first world problem for sure. It is a science too. I am not great at it. I think I've tried to pay more concerted effort here over the last, for whatever reason, the last couple of months on my own. But I'm looking at the jumble of cables behind my monitor right now. And yeah, it's a real rat's nest back there. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, um, they they sell things on Amazon for it, so that's my plan. But you know how we work, Jeff, is every time I need a technology upgrade or anything related to making my technology a little bit better, I ask you. So if you have any recommendations, I'm all ears, and I'm sure our listeners would love to know. I think for cable management, um, I think that the cream of the crop would be a Velcro tie. But in the absence of that, just an, any old twist tie, like even you get off like a bread bag, uh, it's mm. really just about keeping them kind of um, together and in sync. Uh, and this is definitely a situation of do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like as, I, as I will reference again, the rat's nest as I look at it behind my monitor right now that I have not gotten to. <laughs> well, Velcro ties to the direction I was thinking, so I think we're on the same page. Yeah, there you go. Um, so I know we're going to have a, a pretty wide ranging conversation around a bunch of different IAM topics. Uh, we've got things like zero trust and we've got, uh, some things like privilege access and identity governance and even maybe some gamification of, of, uh, IAM. So, uh, to help us with that conversation, uh, we've got Eric Anderson. He's the director of enterprise security at Adobe. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. So uh, this is uh, your first appearance on the show. Hopefully it won't be your last. But um, before we get too far into talking shop here in identity and access management, I think one of the things that's always interesting for people to understand is, you know, what's your background in the space? You know, coming in from information security and, and how did you get there? Is that something that you chose or did you choose it? Um, it was a bit of both. Uh, I've been at Adobe for over 26 years, and so I've had many different lives and careers within the company. And I came to security through, I had a, um, there was an opportunity to join the team in, in a directory space. And I had had history with some of the team and been obviously dependent on it and understood directories and identities as, as part of that. And so about Five years ago, when this role opened up, I, I jumped at the chance to join security and uh, haven't looked back since. Yeah, like so much, it probably has to do a lot with timing too, right? Being in the right place at the right time. and Absolutely. Networks, knowing yeah. the right people. And building your network, you know, a lot of it, you know, Adobe is a very relationship-based company, like I'm sure a lot are. So it's, you know, building your building up friendships and relationships and understanding and, and letting people know what your interests are. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really interesting part of it, too. Now, you haven't always been in the, the IT space. I know that we were kind of talking ahead of, ahead of this, uh, this uh, recording session that we're doing now, uh, that you were actually involved with radio at some point. Is that true? I was. In my previous life, I, I spent quite a few years working for a couple local radio stations in Seattle, where I live. Um, was a producer for one of the rock and roll stations that's long defunct. And uh, then I was part of the, the team that started the first alternative radio station in Seattle back in the early 90s. And so I was lucky enough to be in the middle of the scene as, as Seattle rose with the Nirvanas and Soundgardens and Alice in Chains and the like. Now that's my era of music. You know, Eric, we often... Um... Jeff and I often joke we've got perfect faces for doing an audio-only podcast, but I'd say that you also have the voice for it. So, uh, if you, you know if you can lend those pipes to us, that'd be great. Um, hey, one of the things we, that you've been working on is a big initiative around Zen and zero trust at Adobe. 
wondering if you could tell us about that, you know, even start at the basics. What is Zen and what are you guys doing with it? So for us, our, our zero trust program, we, we dubbed it Zen at the beginning with, as an acronym for zero trust enterprise network. Um, we kind of started looking at zero trust about three years ago. Now we had, you know, Google was starting to advertise and talk a lot about their beyond trust program. We had met with some of our other peer companies about what they were looking at in the field. And we were very excited about the idea and how we could do it. And at the time, there wasn't a single vendor solution to do it. So we started looking at trying to figure out what are the base pieces you needed to make Zero Trust work? How could we leverage our existing investments? And what were the little pieces we needed? So we kind of took that to heart and started working with um, our existing vendors that we were working with and figuring out how could we start stitching stuff together. And the, and the mantra was deliver something quickly using existing technology and minimize our investments. And so it really caused us to be super creative, reach out and, and extend and, and use the partnerships we had across the industry. And we wound up in mid-summer 2018 launching our first kind of version of, of Zero Trust. And one of the mantras that we had with it was um, we wanted an easier and a better user experience while increasing security, which I think is a lot of the mantra of what Zero Trust delivers. It's one of the few chances you get to actually make things more secure without, with making user experience better. Um, and so we've been piloting it and kind of playing around with it. And then we acquired um, a couple companies that summer and they had some employees or locations that we were less, we weren't too enthusiastic about, about linking up the networks and the data centers together. So we decided it was a perfect pilot to see, could we at scale deploy zero trust? So, you know, normally when you onboard a new employee from an acquisition, you would go in and do a touch and connect them through VPN and onto the networks. And in this case, we decided, well, let's deploy our certificates. Our, our zero trust is based on certificate authentication and device scores on that front um, and get them access to what they needed without needing VPN. And it was super successful. It allowed us to go from about 50 users to 1,000 users in less than a month. And then it kind of took off from there. We've been talking about Zero Trust so much on the podcast lately. And I hope, I hope our listeners aren't thinking that we're getting away from IAM. You know, we, we call the podcast Identity at the Center, really basing that on we think identity is at the, at the center of information security. But zero trust be so much to that because, you know, the old model was you had people sitting on the network and doing things within the network. The new model is much more that you have somebody sitting at home or somebody sitting at Starbucks accessing a cloud application, still doing business work, and you still have to secure that. But it's all outside of the traditional perimeter. And really, it's the identity management, having good identity management processes and technology uh, as a means to secure your environment. So I wondered what you thought of that, but also I wanted to just ask a follow-up, which is, you know, the COVID pandemic really put this on in high gear for a lot of organizations, really sped up their timeline to go after Zero Trust. So I'm wondering, you know, beyond my first question, really, what did the pandemic have in terms of an impact for Adobe? Yeah. Um, so, so the first part of your question, I 100% agree. Identity is at the center of what Zero Trust is. It, to your point, it, you know, traditionally the network was the perimeter and what we used to use as the gatekeeper. And Zero Trust is all about shifting it to being the user and, the, and their identity and, and tying that together with behaviors and, and making decisions about how much you trust this user because you're coming from a state of, of already compromised. You know, we assume they're already compromised or they're already doing something that they shouldn't do in, in some ways, and they have to prove their trust. And you know, the identity is, is, is the key part for that. Um, 
for your second part about COVID and the transition, that's one of our great success stories, I think, because we had already been about a year and a half into our, our zero trust journey. And we had got the foundation out. We had, like, like many of us, early March, um, Adobe on a Thursday said, hey, everybody's going to start working at home. And they, we all geared up. We kind of had done some initial checks to make sure that the network could handle the, new, the, the load that was going to be expected with you know, 25,000 people plus extended workers all of a sudden working from home. And looking at what the even what the VPN could handle, and Zen helped, and so we everybody switched, everybody was on call that weekend, ready for to handle anything that would happen. Not a single outage, not a single event. Monday came, and everybody just was smooth sailing, working at home. So you know, Zen. If we hadn't had our Zen program in place, it would have been a far different transition and experience for people working at home. And, and as a matter of fact, what it really did is it really helped us scale out Zen even faster. You know, onboarding applications, it was like, well, I don't want to use VPN to get to my on-premise apps. And before it was a nice to have when you're in the office, but now you're at home, it allowed us to really ramp everything up. And because the Zen platform's more secure, we got a huge security boost and employees were just didn't miss a beat. And it was, it was pretty amazing. You benefited from, I think, the foresight of putting in place, which you know, I think a lot of organizations, frankly, struggled last March and April with not having had a plan in place for this. You know, I think to some degree, it's a little bit understandable. You know, I don't think anybody really kind of would see a pandemic coming that would force everything so quickly and so abruptly to all of a sudden be online. But I think this is, this is where planning goes in, right? It's making sure that you have the capability to be able to support remote workers as needed. And with the technology that's out there now, um, you start to remove reliance from single points of failures like VPNs and concentrators and things like that, where, you know, you might be good for 5,000 and you, you always thought that was going to be, you know, there's no way we'll ever have 5,000 people. And then all of a sudden, 10,000 people are working from home <laughs> simultaneously, right? So trying to work through that process, I think, was was a real nightmare for a lot of people uh, last year. But it sounds like you were ahead of the game and really kind of proved it out that it was successful and demonstrated to, you know, potentially counterparts in the business to say, look, this works. Don't go the VPN route. Come on over here. You know, the, the water is just fine in the Zen water, <laughs> maybe we'll say. And, you know, have your apps work through that that process from an authentication standpoint. It sounds like you were able to show the value and that it worked. And because of that, you were able to get even more adoption uh, for integration into into the Zen architecture that you had built out there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and a lot of it was, you know, I, I would say we were we had positioned ourselves in a great place to be ready for it. But, you know, to your point, we were, nobody expected it to be at this scale and this fast. So I feel like a lot of it was right place, right time. We had made some, some pretty smart decisions along the way. Um, but yeah, it was, it, it really helped us demonstrate. I, I think, well, kind of backing up a little bit, the part that I think was really exciting about the way we had implemented zero transfer, we have done it, is we had taken that model you can, most companies can take what they have today and with very little investment, get on the zero trust path. And we'd been advocating that for more than a year before all this happened. So I think what really helped is as these other companies had to figure out how to solve for it, we had lots of material out there that had talked about what we had done. Um, and even our, our, our executives had been talking in, in, in their forums about, about the transition. So I think it was it was neat for us to see how we could help contribute back to the community and demonstrate that there's ways to do this. Um, even, you know, it may not, it's never going to be perfect. You're always going to be improving it, but it's like, you can, you can definitely get there. And we would wait, we would bet that you have 90% of the tools already in your, in your wheelhouse to, to get there. Did you encounter any resistance trying to get things moving forward? Were there any, arguments that you were getting from other parts of the business that you had to overcome as trying to move towards a zero trust, uh, the model? Um, there was some resistance. I, I think part of it that, and, and we still struggle with today is as an example, 
for the certificate-based authentication, the only way the certificates can be pushed onto your machine is if you're on a, a managed device. And, you know, and, and traditionally, there's a lot, of, um, a lot of people that don't want management put on their machines for performance reasons or, or for various other parts. So there was a lot of conversations around, well, could we enable a machine without them being managed? And that was just, you know, that's a hard no. And so it, it turned into a little bit of an incentivized thing. So, so the resistance they had was like, great, if you don't want to do this, you need to use traditional VPN. You're not going to get a passwordless experience and you're still going to, and, and you're going to have to go through that pain every time you want to get on board. So the resistance kind of had to figure out if that's what they want to do, deal with. And, and so it's a little bit, it, it ties back to the user experience part. You know, a big part of what we try to do is provide a great user experience while increasing security. And it, it's pretty hard to say no to that. So Eric, just for our, our, um, our own knowledge, why did you take a hard stance on not allowing um, the managed, non-managed devices or unmanaged devices? For, well, the, an unmanaged device couldn't be part of the zero trust platform that we had built out, mainly because uh, there's a couple of fronts on that. In order to have that insight and the visibility into their endpoints, we required some minimum um, configurations. You know, you had to have our EDR tool on your machine. You had to have, um, you know, some base level OS patch, OS levels and stuff like that for order for us to have a certain level of trust for the device. And then since we were using the certificate authentication, we need to be able to prove you are who you say you are in order to get that certificate. And there was just no, no way to reliably do that in a secure way without saying you, if you have to be managed for us to be able to have that level of insight and control to you and your device. If you choose not to, then you don't get to, you don't get to play in the playground. Yeah. If you want the easy button, here it is, but the easy button yeah. comes with some, uh, some requirements. Uh, I'm curious, how, do you guys support BYOD when it comes to, uh, you know, laptops and devices like that? And if that is the case, how do you manage those types of devices then? Are you just joining them through something like Intune or, some other platform to basically bring them under management? Yeah. So yes, we do support BYOD and, and our, our stance on that is, is, is you're more than welcome to bring your own device, but if you want access to our data, you need to, you need to have the device managed. And so, so they do need to install our device management products and allow us to install, you know, the necessary requirements in order to, to get a Zen certificate. Right. Um, and we're moving more and more towards, you know, finding ways so that if you're not managed and not part of Zen, preventing folks from being able to get access to things. Because traditionally, they could still, you know, use VPN and some other methods you get in the old, the old fashioned way. Yeah, as the screw tightens, so to speak. <laughs> exactly. exactly. I know that you guys have been doing some work also with our friends over at the Identity Defined um, Security Alliance. And our friend Julie Smith has been on the show actually a couple times at this point. We just yeah. celebrated Identity Management Day. What are some of the things that you work on with the IDSA? Um, well, Adobe is a, uh, we're, we're part of their customer advisory board. So we, we kind of came on early in our, in our Zen process. Because as we realized that, you know, we've got different vendors and different, and every vendor had kind of their own way of implementing certain components, having a standard or a, a, a consortium of, of folks that were talking about identities and how do you manage them? How do you, how do I pull data from one vendor securely and plug it into the next so I can move along in my process for, for the, uh, the authentication flow? We, we ended up reaching out to, we, we discovered the IDSA. We reached out to Julie and her team because, it, it, you know, with the framework they're building of really trying to get the leaders in this space together and talk about, we all are trying to solve the same problem. So how do we make sure we can interoperate with each other and deliver components? It was exactly what we were looking for to have that forum and have that input in, in it. And then the other part was, is as a, part of the advisory board, it's allowed us to share our story and show, you know, through the, the IDSA and, and, their, and their meetings and given us a chance to present at various forums, whether it's ISACA or 
at NIST and other places as they're talking about zero trust and fleshing it out, it's given us a chance to tell our story and say, hey, you can do this. Here's, of all the vendors that are part of IDSA, we're using all of them. Uh, there's some newer ones that haven't joined yet that we're, we're encouraging them to, to do so. But, you know, here's a, here's a community that wants to do the same thing you do. You should, we need to kind of all work together. And Julie, Julie and the IDSA has been really great in helping make those connections and advocate for identity and, and security and all that. So it's, it's been a great partnership. Yeah, I really think it's great the, uh, the work they're doing to kind of build a community, get the best practices out there. Speaking of best practices, you uh, mentioned when we talked earlier that you guys have been doing a lot um, with your IAM program to better manage privileged identities. Um, I always come from the standpoint of, you know, privileged access really needs to have the gate of multi-factor authentication. I'm wondering, what are some of the things that you guys have done at Adobe? What are kind of some of your successes and, and what are some of the areas that are challenges that you're still working on? In the privilege space, it's, 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 I, I agree with you. I think privilege tends to be kind of the, the, after folks feel like they've got IEM figured out, then they start looking at privilege. We've, and, and we started that way. And over the last few years, privilege has risen up to be a, you know, a peer to the, the, the base IAM. And it's, and for us, the, we're, the cool things we're starting to do now, it, let me back up and we started off by delivering privileged, mainly targeted at, at our infrastructure team, you know, that needed access to the servers and that where all the, all the crown jewels were and, and really deployed the whole privilege access workstation or the PAW philosophy, you know, an isolated air gapped could never be, could never be touched outside of this world. And they had to use separate accounts, and and that was really successful, but it was a bit burdensome and and difficult to to really scale. And so, it, in the last few years, there's been some new technologies come out that we've really embraced, and we think has addressed all the issues that the pause did originally. And things like today, we've locked down all of our data centers um, by using Bastion hosts. And the way we've been able to leverage, and, and the cool thing how this has evolved is. I, I go through a Bastion host using my productivity account, and then that then transitions into my privileged account to get to the device and issues a one-time use password. In some cases, depending on the level of, of um, classification the machine is, it may even be a unique ID that can only be used once. And so it's elevating those privileged credentials and identity into a place where it's very difficult to compromise for lack of a better way to put it. Um, and so that's been really successful and we're starting to roll out more just in time types of access for um, privileged access. So, so these accounts don't even exist anywhere until they're needed, which is, is pretty powerful. And, and the other success we're, we're really seeing and taking hold of is ephemeral SSH based keys. So, you know, traditionally a lot of folks that are admins that, that use SSH have been, um, you know, they store their private keys on their on their personal machines. Their personal machine gets compromised, then it's, you know, they can get to where they need to go. And so these ephemeral certificates are really a way to provide that level of security. Um, and so that's been the success story. I think, um, Jim, back to your, your other part of it about where we had challenges. I think a lot of the challenges is figuring out how to do this in the cloud for cloud services. It works great for on-premise, getting the infrastructure and all the admin stuff and the secure parts or the privileged parts that users need there. But when it's internet-based, cloud-based, you know, for people that need to administrate services or, or, or the like, like if you're a Salesforce admin, finding a way to translate that over to make it leverage the privileged isolated identities in that space. And so, so that's a big challenge. We're trying to figure out what's the best way to do that has somebody solved it and bring this back to the IDSA, you know, talking with them, how are they looking at it and who are and their partners and members? How are they solving it? Cause I don't want to go off and solve it myself if, if somebody's figured it out. And yeah, absolutely. I think um, one of the things that I've seen kind of in, especially in my consulting career, but even prior as like an IAM program manager is that privilege access requires 
collaboration with the folks uh, who do the privileged or who do the administration work, probably more than anything, right? You're potentially changing their process, adding some overhead. You know, they're going to have concerns about, hey, will I be able to do my job if your systems aren't available? Did you kind of work through that? Did you have any issues where potentially you had pushback or were you collaborating right from the beginning with those administrators? It was both. I think we we initially defined what we viewed as privileged identities and the way we thought it should be used and leveraged and kind of fleshed out the original vision. But then we immediately pivoted to the users and the people that we would, you know, the, the, the initial group that we knew would be the first adopters or have to be the first adopters of it. And then try to work on iterating through it because yes, we want them to be secure. Yes. We want to make sure that the, the devices they're using are secure, but on the same note, everything that we talk about the way employees work and, and, ease of use and a good user experience that needed to kind of carry over in this space too. So how do we increase the security while reducing friction? And especially when you're looking at administrators and, and the like, you know, the more friction really slows down. If you've got, if you have an outage or a service is impacted, anything like that can, can really have a big effect on even revenue at some point, depending on what the service is. And so you need to provide a, an easy way to get in. So yeah, there was lots of resistance of changing their workflows and how they do it or, or get in to administrate. But we, we partnered with them. There was a lot of, of trial and errors to figure out what the tolerance was. And we kind of settled on an agreed upon risk and here's the solution. And then we continue to just try to iterate it as it goes along. I think a lot of the capabilities that you've been describing over the last couple of minutes is nirvana for a lot of CISOs maybe that are out there listening. And boy, I wish I had, you know, the maturity from a privilege access perspective um, that that you've been describing. I've got a little bit of a, of a left field question and maybe it's not so much left field, but do you consider social media accounts part of your privileged access management strategy? Absolutely. Yeah, we I think. The reason why I hesitate and I, and I think about it is we have a way to secure those and make sure the, that only the right people can get access to those that need to get to them. That is, um, it's, it's the same principle and philosophy. It's just kind of implemented in a, in a different way. That yes, there's you know, the same level that privilege identity gives you and the tools from, you know, auditing and logging and all those things apply into the social media accounts as well. Okay. I asked because, you know, I haven't been in consulting nearly as long as Jim, who's an old man at this point in the consulting world. But I remember starting to ask this question a few years ago, and it always raised eyebrows. And I think to some degree, it still does today where maybe social media accounts don't get included as part of at least the strategy and the planning and the governance process go around with it you know, maybe it doesn't necessarily mean actively managing them, but at least being aware of them and how are they being utilized, who has access to them, you know, those sorts of things. Because in today's world, right, with brand damage that could take place with the wrong thing posted or even sometimes with the right thing posted, <laughs> um, you know, it can have a, you know, a, a pretty severe impact uh, on the business as well. So I was curious for your thoughts on that. Um, you talked a little bit also in one of our, of our pre-meetings here around Gamification. I find this is something that's very interesting because I see I've seen efforts to try to gamify a variety of different security tasks where it may be, you know, phishing emails or, you know, number of access certifications completed without remediation. Right. Or <laughs> things like that. Um, what are some of the things that you've been thinking about when it comes to gamification for some of the security programs that you've been working on? Yeah, it's it's been a fun one to, to look at. And one of the ways we're, we're, we're thinking about it is with our device trust. So the, 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 the vendors we're using and the solutions we're using have the capability for us to take in multiple types, multiple um, sources and build a trust score based on, you know, it could be what's your level of patching, what's been your recent user behavior, what sites have you been going to, 
Um, do you have the latest um, updates for your malware protection? And it will build a score between one and a hundred, and then we can we can rank it for low, medium, and high. And so the user can see that on their device, and they're told, "Here's ways you can increase your score." And then we will also then we're working on a way to take all that information and roll it up to the leadership levels. So as an example, I'll be able to see all of my all of my team members in my org, and that will roll up to like a score to say, here's the average score across your org of, of what your user's trust score is. And the hope is, 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 is then we'll continue to roll that up all the way up to the C-suite level. And then the hope is, is, is you know, me and my peers will look at it and goes, well, you know, Eric's org is a, has an average of an 80, and Tom's org has an, has an average of 85. How do I get to Tom's level? Why is my org less than, than Tom's? And then the hope that just continues on up. And so leadership is kind of, uh, hopefully their competitive nature kicks in and they try to one-up each other and do that and help drive the, the security then on top of it. And we've seen that before. We had, um, with our, we used to have a, um, a dedicated privilege access management dashboard that kind of did the same thing. And it was kind of fun. You could see the orgs and, you know, you could see as we were adopting privileged identity, you could see, oh, well, you know, Eric's team has had only 20 of the, 20 of the 30 people use their privileged accounts in the last 30 days or whatever it may be. And you could kind of use that as a way to, to drive adoption and usage. And so since we had success with that, as, as we started looking at going down the zero trust path, you know, the scoring was something important we wanted to make sure we could, we could have. Um, but the key with the scoring is you can't give somebody a score unless you can tell them how to fix it or make it better. So that was part of the challenge is a lot of, a lot of people will deliver you a score, but you have no idea how it was come up with or, or why. And so that, that's been the part we wanted to add for the user experience. Yeah, I was going to ask about the competition aspect, if you were seeing that at different levels of the organization. And, you know, at the other the other side of it, too, is how do, you, how do you incent normal users, right, to do the right thing and to improve their security score? Have you, have you done anything around, you know, whatever that might look like? Maybe it's gift cards or, you know, they get to pick the cafeteria lunch menu for a week or, you know, preferred yeah. parking. You know, there's a lot of different ways, but I'm curious, you know, how do you incent a normal user out there? to take this stuff seriously because at the end of the day, we're all human. And, you know, unless you're specifically targeted, most people on the bad actor side are looking for low hanging fruit, right? They're going to try and go after the easiest targets. You know, we haven't done a campaign yet along the lines of, you know, rewarding and it's like, Hey, who's, who's got the, the best security score or trust score in their org. We've kind of driven it more in the, in the space of, as we get more and more into classifying applications, you know, are they medium, low, high risk, you know, like we'll, we're going to start setting trust scores that have to be at a minimum level to get to those applications. So the idea will get to, hey, if I can get by all day long every day and the only apps I need to get to requires a trust score of 50 or less, maybe that's good enough and we trust it. But if they need to get to maybe say, you know, they have access to Workday or Salesforce or, um, source code, we may say, hey, you have to be in the high 90s to get there. And so the incentive is more, it's probably more, I need to get my job done. And in order to get my job done, I need to be on a secure machine and um, and trying to make sure you're able to do that, I guess, is the way to look at it. But um, with, the, with the whole COVID and work at home stuff, a lot of that's been a little more difficult to kind of, um, as far as giving people fun ways to get there, it's been more, hey, you're in a public open network, you need to lock down, you know, imagine you're at Starbucks and the same thing as being at home. So, so let's focus on the security side and, and pushing you towards the least privilege model. Mm -hmm. You've got some guy sitting in the cafeteria with Wireshark running, capturing all the packets <laughs> through, you know, it's almost like you're describing when you talk about um, your, your high, medium, low, almost like a clearance level, right? In between yeah. your accesses. And if you, are in the high, right? You have a high clearance because you have high security, et cetera. So that could be another way for, for folks out there to kind of think about it. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. I like that. I think what you described, Eric, is kind of a very pragmatic approach. I, I just feel like the gamification piece, um, it's amazing what people will do on like 
public forums and stuff to be certified as a pro or a gold badge and what people, you know, the amount of time people invest for those kind of things. I really feel like it's kind of got a lot of untapped potential in our space. You know, just think in the IGA space where you're talking about people doing recertifications and things like that, achieving a gold badge. But, um, yeah. you know, you, you talked to us on our pre-call a little bit about your IGA platform that you've built a custom front end to it. Now you did this many moons ago, um, but it's enabled, you know, a lot of user experience and functionality features. And you kind of pull a lot of things together before those things were available on your IGA platform kind of out of the box. But I'm kind of wondering, um, you know, maybe you can talk to us a little bit about how you found yourself using a custom front end and whether or not you think, whether you think it's going to be kind of an enabler going forward or if it's baggage and eventually you're going to want to be on something more out of the box. Uh, I'll answer the, the last part first. It's, it's absolutely both. You know, there's, there's a level of baggage to it in that we've, we've, we've taken multiple capabilities and put them into a single location, a single self-service portal, which means we've got to continue to, you know, operate it, keep it up to date, you know, as, as if you think about it, as just at the level of the website and as technology changes, as, as vulnerabilities are found, just, we've got to operate and maintain it and keep the lights on and make sure it's got the, the reliability required because it's a critical piece. It's, it's woven itself into the fabric of Adobe as being one of the critical pieces of what you need to get your job done. So that part of it, it's wonderful and then it enables people to do a whole bunch of great stuff, but there is overhead that goes with it to keep it running. And it's given us the capabilities to um, build multiple parts so that you can do, you can, with one section, you can touch several areas where before, when normally when you go on a, on a vendor solution, you're limited to what the vendor offers and you can't kind of stitch things together. Um, and that kind of goes back, Jim, to the original part of your question about why we did it we had we had discovered over the years we had built you know i think at one point we had like seven different portals in the security space that were delivering kind of unique pieces whether it was group management or configuring multi-factors resetting passwords or what have you and the portal effort was let's consolidate them all down let's make one portal to rule them all so to speak and the resulting was 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 what we call the AR IAM portal, where you can go in there and and do everything you need to do to get access to applications, configure your multi-factor, set your passwords, um, and and manage your mail list groups. All kinds of stuff is is done in there, and it's all centered around you know who you are and what you need to do. Um, so it's, it's been great, and I think as we've seen newer companies and technologies come along that kind of cater to hosting multiple functionality. I think, I think we're excited to see how we could leverage that because I think all of our, all of our portals have APIs on the back end. So we're more than happy to um, let somebody that's better at front ends deliver those and we can just maintain our governance and our, our, um, our audit capability on the back end as these things change. I find it really interesting that your custom IEM product that you've built essentially for the organization has been such a success story because most of the time, and, and maybe my view is tainted because you don't call advisory services when things are going great, right? You're just saying the worst of the worst, um, is that a lot of organizations that have gone down that path have not been happy with it. And it's probably a combination of things, right? They probably didn't treat it like a product. They didn't care and feed it. They didn't keep it up to date. And it was probably a Band-Aid to something that they probably wanted to do elsewhere. And so we see a lot of organizations now trying to leverage uh, things like ITSM tools, things like ServiceNow, for example, as the front door for IT services and by extension, logical access and maybe even physical access may go through the same process. Um, or potentially using similar types of front doors built into IGA tools, right? Whether it's SailPoint or Savient or Amada or whatever it may be, right? Uh, I, I find it very fascinating and interesting that you've built something, you like it, and it works. <laughs> I guess that's the fascinating part of it. <laughs> yeah. It's been a, you know, and 
I know this term is overused. It's been a journey in a big way. I mean, when it first launched, we had, you know, we had performance issues with it and we had, you know, sometimes there'd be stability issues or there'd be, you know, just like any new product. So, you know, it's kind of as, as, as the demand has changed, as the needs have changed, we've been able to kind of roll with the punches and keep up. And, you know, over the, over the years, it's turned into a very stable and reliable and critical piece. You know, if anything, just for, for us, the biggest part of it is, is group management. You know, I don't, I don't know how other companies do it, but, you know, we, we allow folks, you know, you can create your groups to manage whether it's mail or that, you know, they're tied to authorization components in the services and there's a whole approval system built in. Um, and then Jeff, to your point, the, a lot of these vendors like SailPoint, they offer their own front end, but it's, it's not the most elegant or easy to navigate in some cases. I mean, I'm sure it's better now than it was before. But as a user experience company and a creative company full of engineers, it's like, hey, we could make this, if anything, we can make it look better and be a much better experience. And then we can kind of augment and add more pieces as we discover and have the capability to maintain our, our governance under the hood. Because the majority, as, as an example, the majority of the back end of our um, IM portal is still SailPoint in the end. So you get all the benefit of a tool like that with everything, but you've just presented a much better experience. Was there ever any point where you were close to throwing in the towel on it? Or was it, yeah, you know what, we're going to power through it and we're going to make it as as uh, successful as we can and, you know, fix all these issues? There was never, no. So, so there was never a time when we said, yeah, just forget it. We're going to, we're going to find something else. So yeah, I think we were, so committed to, and, and our culture is so about self-service and enabling people and, and everything. And we had had multiple portals already that had been successful. So this was, you know, consolidating. I mean, even before my time or uh, not before my time, but for more than 15 years, we've had self-service group management at Adobe. So that's just baked in. So you, we, we have to make that work, but it was a legacy system and we needed to modernize it. And while we're there, let's add multi-factor and we can help people configure that in a one-stop shop and not have to go to multiple places and build it all together. So it's, yeah, there was never a time when we said no and we, and we're just going to give up. We always wanted to make it better and we powered through it. And, you know, I think it's been a great success story. Yeah. And I, you know, I was just thinking, Jeff, is you were talking about a lot of the clients who have built their own portal, who are struggling with it. I think a lot of times they built the front end and the back end, right? And they oftentimes had one developer who had been with the company 25 years. It's within a couple of years of retirement. And they're like, what are we going to do? This was written in COBOL and, <laughs> you know, COBOL for the web or something like that. And it's like, you know, we're not going to be able to hire anybody to maintain this going forward. So, um Eric, you've been super gracious with your time. Um, one thing that we we wanted to do was ask a non-identity and access management question of you, and we'll also provide our answers. So in the spirit of your um, DJing days and your coming from Seattle on the grunge scene, and, and that's not a constraint, right? So the question is, if you could be any rock star for one day in their prime, who would it be and why? And it doesn't have to be from that grunge. It can be through any period in the rock and roll history. Um, so it's not going to be grunge. Um, my all-time favorite band is Queen. Um, and I could never be a Freddie Mercury, but my, my, my favorite rock star who you could debate is a rock star is John Deacon, who's the bass player for Queen. And like... And, and I really relate to bass players, not that I can play it very well, but I love the fact they're kind of in the back in the engine room. And if they're not there, you miss them. Um, and then a lot of times you don't know they're doing what they're doing until, until you don't hear them. And I, and, and with John Deacon, I think I love his story. You know, he still lives in the house he bought with his first royalty check from Queen. You know, when, when Freddie died, he, uh, he said, I'm done. I'm not playing anymore because I played with the best. Why should I continue? And I think last I read something on him, he's like, he went on and became a school teacher, a music teacher somewhere in England. So 
I do think it's a great story, and, uh, and you know, he wrote some of their best hits, and some of them are my favorites. So that's my pick. Yeah, such a very cool answer. You know, I I grew up listening to classic rock in colleges where I really fell in love with music, and that was the grunge days, and I was a huge um, Kurt Cobain fan. That was originally going to be my answer. Um, I got into jam bands after college, right, when that started heating up with Fish and and other bands that follow, like String Cheese Incident. Um, but I'm going to choose the lead singer of Fish, Trey Anastasio. Uh, and the reason is, two. One, when he would play, I mean, you would see people go into a trance. It could have been the psychedelics that they were on, but I think part of it was just the music and his ability to play the guitar. And the second reason is, like, people almost worship the man <laughs> you know like the way they they talked about him and revered him you never heard anybody talk bad about him so that's going to be my pick jeff Stedman, what about you oh man this is such a hard one for me to answer my my music taste first of all could be described as everything except country I just, I can't get into country no matter how much my wife tries to get me into it. It's just, it's not happening. I'm sorry. I love you, but it's not going to happen. So I'm all over the place from like electronic music to rock. Um, you know, I think of, I think of people that I think I really idol, not idolize, but really admire from a talent perspective. I think of people like Dave Mustaine from the guitarist ability. I think of Dexter from Offspring, of all people, because they were the first band I ever saw live. And I'm sorry, but seeing Smash in 90, I guess it would have been 95, I think it was, when I saw them live at the Aragon Brawl Room in the Chicago uh, scene when, when I was around there. And then maybe somebody like Chris Cornell, who I think has hands down one of the best voices ever for rock. It's hard for me to pick one. Um, I mean, I guess I would have to say Dave Mustaine, but only because he's been in, he was in Metallica, you know, at one point he went on to make Megadeth. He had wrist issues and couldn't play for a while. He's come back from that. So I'm going to go with Dave Mustaine on the, uh, on the rock star. And, and I think he truly does epitomize the rock style, rock star, uh, lifestyle, at least for part of his life. <laughs> Absolutely. That's a great choice. I love that question. That was a great one, Jim. Um, yeah, Eric, so you've been great with your time, and I know we want to get things closed off here, and we're, we're running towards the end of uh, where we want to leave it. Before we go, are there any words of wisdom that you could impart upon Jim and I and the folks who are listening on your InfoSec journey and how maybe other people could take some of that advice and, and lend it to their world? Or alternatively, a great band that nobody knows about that they should go out and check out, or both? Oh, I can do both. I mean... Well, I, I don't know if these are great words of wisdom, but it's something I, over the years I've, I've really come to believe in is always doing the right thing. I think especially in the security space I've discovered recently, is there's so much talk about um, you know, how, to, how to secure this, how to protect that. And I think we all really know when we're in those scenarios what the right thing to do is, but it may not be the easiest. It may not be what people want to hear. And for me, that's, that's kind of turned into my, my go-to lately is I think at our core, we know what the right thing is and we just need to be brave enough to say it and, and be that guy or gal in the room that says it. Yeah. I like that. I think that was a great one. I appreciate that. No, I, I think it's hard. It's sometimes hard to do the right thing. And sometimes it feels like you're beating your head against the wall to try and get anything done, <laughs> especially, yep. you know, sometimes in, in the corporate world where you have so many different constraints and things you have to, to hurdle. So I love that. Um, what about a band? So, my favorite current rock band who I think everybody needs to see live is the struts. So if you haven't heard of the struts, you need to go stop what you're doing now and go look them up and listen to their stuff. They are probably one of the best. They're like a classic old school rock and roll band and their live show is off the charts. Um, so yeah, the struts, the struts are amazing. I do love the struts and you are absolutely right. That is like, they are definitely old school. They remind me a lot of uh, like Rolling Stone style, uh, yeah. that kind of, you know, big over the top vocals, crunchy guitars, you know, a really catchy, you know, either guitar riff or hook. But yeah, definitely the struts are, they're, they're good stuff. Good call. And you'll, you'll, you'll love this just, just side note connection. So I saw them live um, a couple years ago now in a club here in Seattle 
Um, and, and they were amazing. And what I learned after the fact is their lead singer, Luke Spiller, who, you know, could, could easily be a Freddie Mercury type of guy. All his costumes on stage are designed by the same costume designer that did all of Freddie's stuff. So I thought that was kind of cool. You got this young up and coming band who's already figured out how to go to the big guys. Yeah, no kidding. That's, that's, that's bar trivia right there. That's that's a go. good pickup. So if anybody took anything from this entire episode, I think that's what they want to take away. <laughs> Jim, how about yourself? Any uh, words of wisdom before we wrap things up? Words of wisdom. Um, I, I love what Eric said. Do what's right. I would even say one of my mentors in IT said, do what's right for the company and you'll never regret your decision. Right. So as any kind of manager, whether it's in IT or elsewhere, if you know, you're employed by the company, do what's right for the company, you won't regret the decision. Uh, but the nugget of wisdom that I wanted to drop this week, believe it or not, it's a shill for Adobe. Because there's so often that you go out to the app store and you're looking for functionality and you're just, you know, overcome with a bunch of apps. You download them, they're garbage. There's an app out there called Adobe Scan. It lets you you know, take a printed document that you have to sign or something like that, take a picture of it with your phone, it perfectly crops it, turns it into a PDF that then you can email or do whatever you have to do with. And I mean, the app is just flawless. I mean, truly, I've used it now for probably about six months and it's fantastic. So if you need an app that does what I just described, Adobe scan. That's where it's at. Yeah, I'll give you your money later too. <laughs> yeah, the check is in the mail, right? <laughs> check um, in the mail. <laughs> I think this episode has a little bit of everything. We, we talked IAM, we talked with some InfoSec, we talked some bands, we're talking apps. Um, I'm not sure what else th there is left to cover, but why don't we go ahead and leave it there for this week? Uh, Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I will have links to some of the things maybe that we've talked about here. I know you've got some write-ups around uh, the Zero Trust Enterprise Network, which is what we've been referring to as the Zen platform on Adobe side. And I know you did some work with IDSA, so we'll have links to that in our show notes. And uh, if you're cool with it, we'll put your, your LinkedIn on there as well. So if people have questions or comments, they can reach out to you directly. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. And then, uh, you know, for Jim and I, we're always open to connections as well. If you've got ideas for the show or just want to talk IEM or who your favorite uh, rock star would be, you know, we're always open to, to connect and talk about that. And uh, so with that, we'll go ahead and close it out for this week. You can visit the show at identityatthecenter.com and you can follow us on Twitter at IDAC podcast. And with that, thanks for listening. And we'll talk with you all in the next one. Thanks for listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and visit us on the web at identityatthecenter.com.